All right, a little bit of background first. It was written some 61 years after the death of Jesus. So what that means is that the people that Paul is writing to, some of these people would have uh, never heard or had the, the pleasure of being in the presence of Jesus. In other words, they were not born at that time. Many of them, not everybody, but some of them had not been born at that time. So they didn't have that firsthand experience. And one of the things I can relate that to is Pastor Chuck Smith. Um, I had the pleasure of being a Calvary Chapel pastor before he went home to be with the Lord. And the things he taught, um, they'll be with me forever. They'll be with me till the day I die. And I've done my best to plant those in you because they're just good. They're, they're good, solid, honest principles, and they are the Word of God. And we need our feet planted firmly on solid ground because there is always something or someone that will come in and try to divert that. And you would not believe how many times we've had people say, you wouldn't believe how many churches I've been to trying to find a church that teaches the Word of God. Now, that's not a pat on the back for us because we owe that to Pastor Chuck. We owe that to men and women who've served the Lord continually and faithfully through the years that have passed that down to us. And uh, you guys might, I'm sure that if you've been around Calvary long, you realize that when Pastor Chuck died, a change took place, and now there's uh, Calvary Chapel Global, I'm not even sure what uh, it is now, and then you've got those that are the old Calvary Chapel guys. I have stuck with what Pastor Chuck, Chuck has taught us because um, I don't worship Pastor Chuck, but he was a good man. He was a humble man. And he simply taught the word of God simply. And those are principles that we really need. But to be with Jesus, can you imagine? To be able to sit with him, to camp with him, to, to hear him say the things that he said. What an incredible thing that would be. But a lot of the generation that's coming up, they haven't had that pleasure. And unfortunately, there's a lot of the generation coming up now haven't had the pleasure of sitting under Pastor Chuck or hearing Pastor Chuck's. You can still hear his teachings on some of the radio stations. So, again, I want to remind you, where does he write this from? Where does, where does Paul write this from? Prison. prison. He's writing it from prison. It was a city located about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. And... At one time, it was a very important trade route. In other words, it was a very wealthy city at one time. You know, wealth comes and goes. Wealthy cities come and go. But it was a very wealthy city at one time. And one of the things that seems to follow wealth is sin. And uh, there was a lot of that going on. It brought in a lot of the current events. It brought in a lot of the current philosophies and theologies of the time. And Paul is trying to bring that back in, praise them for the things that they're doing well, and helping them understand the things that maybe they're not doing so well. Isn't that the, the job of every parent, really? Is to praise your kids for the things that are going amazing, that they're doing well in their life, and not condemning them 
for what they're doing wrong, but trying to guide them back into doing the things that are right by teaching them the right way to be able to do something. Paul finds himself in the same situation here. The church in Colossae was not founded by Paul. In fact, Paul had never visited the church, but he spent three years in Ephesus. And during that time that he was in Ephesus, he led a man to Christ by the name of Epaphras. Now, uh, you're going to hear that pronounced in different ways, but uh, I looked it up. So that's whatever that's worth. Um, Epaphras, uh, Epaphras, it doesn't matter. I, it, even when I was looking it up, I saw some Calvary chapels uh, pronouncing it one way, others pronouncing it another way. Is it important? Yes, it's important. But by the same token, it's not as important as understanding the context of what's going on. And that was that he had led this man to the Lord. And he brought that news back to his family. And a church began as a result of Paul's message. Why was it written? Again, again excuse me, to correct false teachings. I'm always blown away when I hear of somebody who has been in Calvary's for a lot of years, and yes, I love Calvary, you might get that impression, but people who have been in Calvary's for years, and then all of a sudden, they go somewhere where there's, there's no solid doctrine. And I'm thinking, how, how, do, you, how do you go somewhere where the, the Word of God is not taught when you've heard the word of God taught, when you know what the word of God is, that seems like that would be very empty to me and very unfulfilling. But we also know that human desires get in the way. Somebody meets somebody that goes to another church and it, you know, it changes them. Or maybe there's a, a need that they have in children's ministry because they have children and that Calvary Chapel might not be able to fulfill that so we go to another one. But my point is this. We can't abandon the Word of God. We mustn't change it. We must keep it. We must hold it in high regard. It, it's got to stay in our life because if we let it get polluted, what do you have left? You don't have anything. If the Word of God is not true, then you don't have anything else. And yet, there are people trying to, well, we'll get to that in a moment. In this case, in this church, it was a blend of Eastern philosophy, Jewish legalism, and Gnosticism. Now, if you take Gnosticism and you bring it down to Gnosis, it means knowledge. So, Gnosticism was those who uh, worshipped knowledge. Knowledge was kind of their God. Today, that might be education. You've met people, I'm sure, who know everything. Usually they come out of that at about 17 or 18. But you meet adults that know everything, right? You, you, can't, you can't get them to realize maybe they're not the smartest person in the room. And if they are the smartest person in the room, if they think they are, then they're sinning anyway. So either way, right? There's a humility that needs to go along with that knowledge. But anyway, they thought they were spiritually superior. And we have those around us today that think that they are spiritually superior. In fact, they think they're smart enough to begin to dissect 
the Word of God. Now, some of the uh, philosophies or some of the heresies that were out there is that all matter is evil. They believe that all matter was evil. Now, I hope you understand what that does to Jesus saying he was the Son of God. It destroys Jesus being a holy God because how could a holy God, with this belief, how could a holy God come in contact with matter? And that, of course, would mean that Jesus could not have come in the flesh. One group preached that the only way to conquer evil matter was by rigid discipline and self-denial. We've heard about that. That is called something, it has a, a name, and it's asceticism. Asceticism, excuse me, is how it's pronounced. It's asceticism. And that's a believing that um, God can't come in contact with evil matter. So if he came in the flesh, couldn't happen, based on their beliefs. Another group believed that since all matter was evil anyway, that you could do anything you wanted to. You could live any way you wanted I mean, if there's a God and God created us and all matter is evil, then we're evil, then just might as well just do what you want. And there's a little bit of that still around today. So Paul's writing to refute these. Are these relevant? What does that have to do with you and I today? Well, we still have the legalists, right? If we're not careful, even Christians, good-meaning Christians can become legalists. Oh, you use that version of the Bible? You can't be godly. It's King James only. If you don't have a King James only, then you're not really studying the Word of God. I would guess that the average Christian probably has at least four Bibles at home. And they don't read any of them. Or very seldom read any of them. So it doesn't really matter if you you have four King James strung out at the house but we never pick them up it doesn't it doesn't really matter does it I'm not a fan of the NIV but I'd rather see someone have one and read it and and grow and understand than I would to have again the King James in there and never read and never understand what the word of God says to them they considered themselves that being in the know the, the gnosis, the knowledge. That means they were in the know. Have you ever met Christians that just know something you don't know? That you're lacking something you need to come to my church and he really experience the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, I just I had to do that. I was watching a video recently and God bless those who express their joy in the Lord that way. But my point is, you're missing something. You, you don't understand what I understand. And you need to come to my church to have my pastor teach you what that is. One of the biggies is tongues, right? There's a lot of folks out there to where they believe you're not saved if you don't speak in tongues. Now, Paul said, I wish you all did. But he said it's in such misuse that people will go home and think you're crazy because it is misused. It's there. Paul said he wishes everybody did have that prayer language. 
But that's what it primarily is, is a prayer language to God. You guys might remember that Scripture says that the Holy Spirit would fall upon people and they would begin to speak with other languages. And on the day of Pentecost, we saw that happen, right? But the part that we miss out on is when they came to the disciples and said, the question that they asked, this is the key to the whole thing, the question that they asked is, what is this that we're hearing? People singing of the praises of God, speaking of the praises of God. Okay? So, what they were hearing wasn't, thus saith God, you got to break up with this one and get hooked up with that one and, you know, you need... That's not what they heard. They heard praise. It was praise of God. It was praise of Jehovah. So if it's used properly, the interpretation of that would be a praise. It would be a song. Now, I've gone through this before, I know, but if you're going to talk to your son or your daughter, and it's important that you communicate with them, if you could speak Greek, would you speak Greek to them if they're not Greek? Your little kid would be sitting there going, why would God need to speak to us through somebody else and then communicate from somebody else to tell us what God said? I don't know of any parent that would do that. They would go to their child and speak with their child. So what I'm saying is there's a lot of things misinterpreted and misunderstood. We still have the legalist. Those who have to jump through every single hoop and they're afraid if they miss one hoop, they're going to go to hell. That they're just not going to make it. That they believe by doing these certain amount of rituals, that's going to make them closer to God. Guys, there's only one thing that makes us close to God is Jesus. That's it. Now, does that mean that we abandon everything that's in the Word of God? No, no, no. It just means that we're missing the point to try to earn His love. He's already given His love. It's at the cross. He's already given us that love. And people have been misinterpreting 1 John 1, 9 for I don't know how long. And here's what it says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Great, right? But some people, that means you only have to do it once and it's done. It's a done deal. Some people are teaching that you never have to ask God to forgive you again. Because it's, it's already done. It's taken place here. He's already cleansed us from all unrighteousness. That's not what this says. Again, if you go into the verbiage and dig a little bit deeper. The verb that is used here for to confess, it's present continuous. Now, for those of you that might not know exactly what that means. It means that if we are confessing our sins, that's what it means. If we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to clean us, clean us from all unrighteousness or forgive us from that unrighteousness. 
So that washing, if you will, needs to take place because we live in a dirty world. So that's something that we need. It, you know what? It'll keep you off of the psychologist's couch. Life is tough, but when we can go to the Lord and know we're forgiven, know that we're forgiven, that's an incredible thing. Incredible thing, excuse me. And there are still people, we still have those that are in the know, again, leading Christians away from the Word of God. As I said, that they believe that they know more than anyone else. They consider themselves the spiritual elite. There is currently a movement that has gained a lot of followers, and it's known as deconstructionism. And I think you younger folks are probably more prone to it than maybe some of us older ones, because it's kind of in that group of people, if you will. At a concert in early 2002, Skillet's lead singer, John Cooper, he took a pause from their show... And he began to speak about something he saw as a dangerous, as a danger of Christianity. And mainly it was this deconstruction. Here's what he said. It is time that we declare war against this deconstruction Christian movement. He says, I don't even like calling it a, a deconstruction Christian because there's nothing Christian about it. It is a false religion. The thing that they're deconstructing is the Word of God. They're deconstructing the Bible. And those that have engaged in this movement, they have a, what they feel is a pretty logical or heady argument for doing so. But in most cases, it comes down to three or four things. Why this is so appealing to them. Number one, they've had their feelings hurt by the church. Now, first of all, let's use a little logic. The church can't hurt anybody. People hurt people. Jesus doesn't hurt people. He loves them and mends them, makes them whole. So it wasn't Jesus that hurt them. It wasn't necessarily the church, but we're all part of the church. So they've been hurt by someone. And a lot of times this is because they don't really understand what the church is. The church is not a welfare organization primarily. A lot of the hospitals that we have today are a result of Christians reaching out to try to help people. But that's not really what the church is. What is the church's mission? To go forth there to all the world. And make disciples. That's the church's primary mission. And that's to teach people how to feed themselves in the Lord. How to grow in the Lord. How to mature in the Lord. How to raise their children in the Lord. How to have a godly marriage. How to have a godly family. Excuse me. That's the mission of the church. So the reality of it is. Why this is appealing to some people is. I don't like the established church. Well you don't like what happened to you. I get that. You know, I understand that. People make mistakes, but don't blame that on God. And don't blame that on God's word. You have to tag that to people. 
And could it be that my expectation was something other than what the church is? Could it be I went in expecting something to happen and it didn't happen the way I wanted it to happen, so I got hurt. Okay, here's the second one, and that is poor teaching. Poor teaching. Maybe they've grown up in the church, but maybe they they didn't really get it. There's this thing inside of us called sin that will fight us to the death. And teenage years are really, well, every year is hard. But teenage years are really hard. Those early years are hard because you're trying to figure out who you are. People you go to school with, the people you hang out with, they, they mean more than they should maybe sometimes. It, it's a very, very difficult time to say, as for me and my house, I'm going to serve God. I'm not going to be run around and, and washed away by all of this stuff. So maybe there was poor teaching, maybe it was poor hearing. Either way, it's a lack of understanding. So this sounds very appealing now because we can go in. Well, let me get to the next one. The third one is a personal desire to sin. If I want to sin, I have to tear out pages of the Bible. If I want to sin and I want to be comfortable in my sin, I have to say some of this is just not right. Living together? Come on, that's old-fashioned. Come on, getting, getting drunk, everybody does it, even Christians. Maybe so. But when we want to sin bad enough and we're not willing to give it up, we're going to start picking the Bible apart. We're going to start deciding what's right and what's wrong, who really wrote this book and who really wrote that, that book, and on and on and on and on. And what's really sad is the, a lot of the seminaries today, they start, their very, their very purpose is to start to try to, po- it starts in a negative way. Pastor, what do you mean? It doesn't start in a positive way like, hey, we're going to bathe you in Jesus. We're going to teach you all about Jesus and God's love and God's mercy and God's grace and what God has to say. A lot of times, we're going to teach you which books may not be true. We're going to teach you which authors may not have written those books. So after three or four years, they come out and they're disillusioned. The last one is street cred. (laughs) Peer pressure. If all of your other friends are doing it, and all of your other friends are in it, and they all think they're superior, you have to follow along, right? Or you're the idiot in the group. You're the one educated, uneducated one in the group. Those are four. I know that's pretty simplistic. But those are four of the main reasons I believe that people fall into this particular setting. So yes, we still have the same issues the Apostle Paul was talking about in this book. And I know that's a very long introduction, but let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy in our life. I'm so grateful we have the word to keep us solid. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 1. Paul, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ, who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's pretty classic introduction of his. He's basically saying that he and Timothy are the writers of the book. This was not uncommon at all for Paul because they believe, you know, his eyes were uh, the biggest part of that thorn in his flesh that he was talking about. And uh, they say that they were pretty uh, runny most of the time. He had, who knows, could have been an, uh, an eye infection. I don't know what. But my, a lot of the times he would have uh, a ghostwriter. He'd have somebody, one of the other guys, do the writing as he dictated the letter. Notice that he's pretty quick to point out that he's an apostle by Apostle by God's will, not his own. It's very important that we try to do what God's called us to do, not what somebody else is called to do, or think that we've got to be like somebody else, because God created you unique, he created you special, he's got a calling upon your life like he does all of us, and you just need to be you, growing and developing in the Lord. Paul, like most of us, how many of you were running from God instead of running to God? That was me. I wasn't running to God. I wasn't like one day, hey, I got to get a Bible and I need to find out, find out who God is. I was doing the same things all you guys were doing. I was running away from God, enjoying, or at least thinking I was enjoying the sin that was in my life. Paul thought he was doing God a favor. He wasn't running to God. He was running away from God. He was persecuting the things of God. And you guys have heard me say, I don't know how many times, that it's amazing how someone can think they're doing God a favor, and in actuality, they're fighting against God. I mean, he, he really believed he was doing God a favor by persecuting the Christians. And then when God finally interrupted his life, he didn't even know who God was. Who are you? I'm the God whom you persecuted. I'm Jesus. All right, verses 3 through 8. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth, of the gospel. That's the only place you're going to hear it. Verse 6, which has come to you as it is also in all the world, and it is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day that you heard, and you knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. It's almost as though Paul breaks into a praise of the folks who are in Colossae. They didn't have that first-hand example of Jesus. They didn't get to, to, to be with him in the early stage, flesh-wise. Flesh Paul hadn't been there. But Paul ministered to someone who went there. That's what we're supposed to do. We get witness to. We share it with somebody else. Give them, give them some of the pot of gold, right? 
And through all of that, they have this faith. A lot of people are trying to come in and destroy that, but they have this faith that has united them. They have this uh, solid information about Jesus Christ, and they're holding on to it with dear life. And it makes Paul feel so proud of them, makes him feel so good about what's going on. Remember, he's in prison. He's praising them for their faith in standing in the Lord. And he's encouraging them in that faithfulness. Now, James would have said it this way. Be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Now, that has to convict all of us a little bit, right? If you've ever been married or been in a relationship or just around your friends, it's easy to hear and not hear. Right? Your friend, your wife, your husband, they're telling you something and you're going, yeah, yeah. Turn around and ask you, what did I just say? Uh, uh, something about something. I know it was something about something, but I, that, that's hearing, but not doing, not understanding. That's a part of our human nature. We have a tendency, it's amazing, we have this ability to turn something off, right? That, that's right there. We can turn something off and not, and not hear it. But you can't do that when you try to go to sleep at night. You ever notice that? You got something going through your head at night. You can't turn it off, but you can sure turn off a spouse. You can sure turn off a friend. We can sure turn off Jesus. We can sure turn off the Word of God. James is saying, do both. Hear it and then do it. And Paul's telling the church in Colossae, you guys have managed to do it. You're living it. You're living the life. And this is what motivated him. Look at verse 5 again. The hope, verse 5 again, the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Guys, we get to go to heaven. Can I hear an amen? amen. <laughs> we get to go to heaven. There are some things in this life that are good. Some of them not so good. But we get to lay all that aside and live in the presence of God forever. Man, oh man, oh man. No more fighting, no more anger, no more wars, no more this, no more that. But to, to be able to live in peace in the comfort of eternity with Jesus Christ. And with him being our ruler, our president, our whatever you want to call it, our God our Lord and our Savior. It's almost demeaning to compare him with any of those because he's righteous and holy and loving and kind and graceful. And all that junk from our past, it's gone. By the way, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, it's gone. That can, that can happen today. It doesn't have to happen later. It can happen today. The devil tries to keep bringing it up. But if you've given Jesus Christ your life and repented, that's, that's done. That's the past. That's no longer who you are. The hope that is laid up for you in heaven of which you've heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also come into the world and is bringing forth what? Fruit. 
There's nothing worse than pouring all your time and money and effort and water and fertilizer into a tree that's got no fruit. No fruit. You spend, you spend tons of money on that, on that tree <laughs> to try to get an orange or try to get an, something out of that tree. And you go out there every time and there's nothing there. We were meant to bear fruit. But for a healthy tree to be healthy, it's got to it's be healthy at the root system. And for you and I to be healthy, it has to be our root. Jesus has to be our root. That's our health. And then he goes on to say, It is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. The word of God had so impacted their life that they changed. So you see, I... I'm sticking my neck out here, and you have full right to disagree with me. I don't think you can be saved and continue to be the same person that you were. I don't think it works that way. There may be a head commitment, but not the heart. There may be an acknowledgement, oh yeah, there's a God, and I believe it's Jesus, but if it's not in the heart, it doesn't change us at all. So if it's not in the heart, are we truly born again? If we have to take the word of God and deconstruct it and throw out what we don't like, are we truly born again? Something for you to think about. John 13, 35 says, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Hallmark of the Christian faith is loving people, loving the unlovely, trying your best to get along with people even with different opinions. Not everybody has the same opinion about everything, but hopefully we have the same opinion about the truth of God's word. The other stuff is irrelevant. Okay, look at, oh, by the way, Epiphras took this all back to Paul. He was so proud of them that he took it back to Paul and bragged about them. All right, look at verse 9. For this reason, we also, since the day that we heard it, heard about them, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you be, this is important, filled with the knowledge of his will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Right, that's important. A couple words you might want to underline. Excuse me, three. Knowledge. Wisdom and understanding. You see, he's starting to fold it in now. This is why he's talking to them. To address these false things that are creeping into the church. And to ask you that you may be to ask that you may be filled with knowledge, wisdom, spiritual understanding. Verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. Now, you might read that and go, yeah, that's just a lot of religious talk. Oh, it's much, much more than that. There's so much more in what he is saying here. 
It's no accident that he used those specific words, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, because he's dealing with the Gnosticism, that worship of knowledge. Paul wanted them to have wisdom. Wisdom. Have you ever met somebody that has a, a bunch of knowledge and they're dumb or dirt? I mean, they got, they're smart. But they can't change a light bulb. You ever? You ever I, I, hopefully, I'm not talking to anyone here. <laughs> you can have knowledge without wisdom. Wisdom is the correct understanding and application of knowledge. You see, I can have all of this knowledge, but if I don't have the wisdom to know how to use it, it doesn't benefit me or anyone else. Paul wants them to have wisdom. Wisdom that he's talking about here is true spiritual understanding. It's really sad because a lot of us, we go through our first, what, 10, 12 years, maybe 12 years of schooling at least, learning things except about God. And for some of us, it wasn't until your 20s or your 30s or your 40s that you finally received the Lord. You had done a lot of education. You had learned a lot of things, but you know very, very little, or we know very, very little about God. He's trying to tell them, guys, I want you to take that knowledge and I want you to turn it into wisdom. In other words, understanding as led by the Holy Spirit. It's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. You ever heard anybody get up and do a, a presentation and it's as dry as dead bones? They got all the facts. They got the slide. Yeah, you're going, Pastor, I know that's going on right now with you. But here's the thing. They got all the knowledge. They got the slides. They got all the facts. But when it's done, you're going, oh my gosh, I can't believe that took an hour. They got all the the knowledge, but they don't have the wisdom to read the audience. They don't have the wisdom to know how to apply it. It's just, let's throw up some slides and let's just hit them with a bunch of facts and that's going, to be, that's going to be awesome. You see, knowledge just for knowledge's sake can become very base, it can become very prideful, and it can become very carnal with no, little or no spiritual application at all. So for the Christian, the end result of knowledge should be wisdom and understanding. The same as Paul prayed for the church in Colossae, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, that we may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. It's work. I mean, sometimes we as Christians, we go, man, I've lived a life and I give my heart to Jesus Christ. Now I'm just going to coast. My life insurance bill is now paid up because when I die, I'm going to heaven. So it's all done. We're just beginning. When we give our life to Jesus Christ, we're just beginning to learn of the, of the, the depth and the understanding and the knowledge of God's word and who he is as a person. And we'll be doing that for the rest of our life, trying to understand who he is without ever completely understanding until we stand before him. That's just 
how deep and wide he is. He wants them to have a noble and a strong walk. We want to have a noble and a strong walk in the Lord. We should know more about the Lord today than we did last week. Can we say that? Can we say I know a little, even if it's just a little bit, I know a little bit more about the Lord today than I did last week. Now look at these, I'm going to give you a few of these words and we're going to get close to quitting on time. Okay. He tells the Colossians that the Lord has qualified us. Right? At, at you know, ground, ground level, we understand what qualified means. He has delivered or rescued us. He has transferred. Some of your translations will say redeemed. But that word qualified means to equip us with adequate power. Have you ever went in for a job interview that you were not qualified for? Most of them. <laughs> and, and maybe if you had a good interview, they probably picked that out and didn't put you in a place where you couldn't succeed. We're unqualified for eternity. We're unqualified because we're sinners. We're unqualified because if we are left to our own devices, we will corrupt in one way or the other. It doesn't mean you're not a nice person. You might be an extremely nice person, but we are not qualified with sin in our life to enter into a heaven with a perfect God. It just, it doesn't work. It can't happen. So what did he do? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus. His son. To die for you and to die for me. To qualify us. And he took upon himself the sins of the world that I might be able to be qualified to be called his son. Man, oh man, oh man. That's just good stuff. Qualified. Equip us with the adequate power to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now, the word delivered. To be delivered means to be rescued. To be delivered means to be rescued. And I shared this illustration a long time ago, but they did a, an experiment with a bunch of rats in, in water. They had them in a, in a bucket, and they'd put them in, the, in this water. See if I can even remember it all, right? And then they timed how long... Right, let's, just, let's just narrow it down to one rat. <laughs> they timed how long it took for that rat to die. The next time they put a rat in there, right before it was time for them to die, they rescued it, took it out. The next time they put the rat in, the rat lasted longer than it did the time before. He had been rescued. He knew someone was coming to take him out of that water. You and I have been rescued. Jesus has taken us out of that water. He's taken us out of 
that world. No wonder we have hope when nobody else does. No wonder we can still have joy when the world's falling apart around us. No wonder we can still have joy when gas is six bucks a gallon or whatever it is now. I don't know what it is. We still have joy in the Lord. We can have joy in an election cycle, not knowing what the heck is going on, right? Because God's still going to take care of it. One way or the other, God is going to take care of it. We can still have that peace. We have been delivered. We have been rescued from that domain of darkness called hell. Eternal torment. Then it says we've been conveyed. We've been moved to convey something. A conveyor belt. You know what that is, right? You put something on the conveyor belt here. It travels over to here. You go from point A to point B. It delivers. It conveys something. We have been conveyed. Jesus has transferred us from that power of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Now, guys, we're all sinners. We were born into sin. But many, many here are saved by grace. You're sinners saved by the grace and the mercy of God because you know what? Jesus came along. Jesus came along, took you off of that conveyor belt and gave you another path. That's what he did for us. He's given us the power to be his sons and his daughters. And then he has redeemed us. That word redeemed means this, to liberate by paying a ransom. You've seen enough cop shows to know what a ransom is, right? We'll give them back. We won't kill them if you can give us $100,000. The people want to pay the ransom so they can get their person back. Jesus has paid the ransom. He has liberated us from that death by paying the ransom with his own blood. And now you might say, well, how about now? How about right now? How about my life? It's a mess. Well, do you want somebody else to run it who knows what they're doing? That's Jesus. There's no better counselor. There's no better psychologist. There's no better doctor. There's no better marriage counselor. No one better at raising kids. No better financial counselor. He's all that wrapped into one. And yet so many times we go, no, no, that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it myself. And then we look at our lives and go, well, I'm not doing such a great job at it. Maybe I ought to give Jesus a chance. All right, let's go to verse 15 and we're going to be closing up. He is the image of the invisible God. Okay, he is the, the image of the invisible God. That's who Jesus is. I want you for a moment, just take a couple seconds and I want you to try to, in your mind, think of who the Father is. What he looks like. Kind of hard, huh? But when I tell you, put an image in your mind about what Jesus looks like. By the way, it's probably not accurate, but you have a vision of it. You can pretty much paint that picture in your head. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
We needed something to hang our faith on. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all of creation. For This is important. For by him all things were what? By him all things, all things were created. That are in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether they're thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers, everything. That means governments, presidents, dictators, he is above them all. All things were created through him and for him. That's Jesus. All the way back in Genesis, and prior to Genesis, He was there. He didn't just show up later in the New Testament. He's been there all along. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in all things we may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should should dwell. In other words, you go into, you know, Philippians again, he's talking about him not considering it robbery to be equal with God. Why? Because he was. Because he was God. In in him was all the fullness. It should dwell in him. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. You guys realize that's what's going on, right? God is in the process of reconciling everything to himself. We've prayed for it for years. God, come quickly. Maranatha, God, come quickly. And then when he starts to do it, we're going, no, 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 not yet. Gas is too high. It's too much money being spent on gas and the world's falling apart. God, what's going on? Well, Maranatha. (laughs) Maranatha. I'm in the process of reconciling all things to myself whether things on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled you. Guys, isn't that cool? No matter how filthy your mind was, God has reconciled you if you've given your heart to Jesus Christ. No matter how bad your life was, God has reconciled you through the cross to him. So you can be qualified to be in heaven. Verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. If you see God, in a mirror, the reflection will be Jesus. If you see Jesus in a mirror, the reflection will be God. They are one in the same. Three in one. Jesus is Jehovah wrapped in the flesh. They don't argue with each other. Well, he used the name Jehovah, not Jesus. Oh, no. My name's John. My mom used to call me Johnny. 
when I was really in trouble, my middle name is William. She'd call me Johnny Bill. I knew I was in trouble if she called me Johnny Bill. But I knew she was talking about me. Jesus is Jehovah wrapped in the flesh. They're not against each other. They're for each other. So if you want to call him Jehovah for the rest of your life, go ahead. He's not, he's not offended. You want to call him Jesus for the rest of, his, of your life? He's not offended. You want to address him as the Holy Spirit? He's not offended. They don't work separately. They work together. Verse 16 tells us the same thing John tells us in John 1.3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now guys, we're talking about, if you go into Genesis, and you take a look even at the beginning of Genesis, and you'll see this same thing. Again, what that means is that Jesus was around at the beginning of all things, creation. All things were done through him, with him, for him, and all that. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Excuse me. The rabbis would use this same phrase to describe the different orders of the fallen angels. When you think of fallen angels, what do you think of? Five, six, seven? Oh no. There are many. And they have a rank and file. But Jesus is the head over how many things? <laughs> Absolutely everything. He is the sum total of all divine power and attributes. He is the living God. He is the fullness. And you and I will not be happy unless we're full. We will not be happy unless we have the fullness of God in our life. Let him in, guys. Let's just don't invite him in the door and don't let him into the other rooms. You've heard that little book, My Heart, My Heart God's Home. If you haven't, you might want to pick it up. And it's basically about letting somebody come in the front door, but you got a couple of dirty rooms in the back, but you ain't letting them back there, right? Those didn't get cleaned up before the company came, so I'm keeping them outside in the, in the kitchen area and in the, in the uh, family room. I'm, I'm keeping them out there. I don't want them in the back rooms. Guys, everybody has a back room that needs to be cleaned up, and Jesus is the one that needs to be allowed to, put, to go into that back room and clean those things up. He's balanced the books. Okay, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded in the steadfastness, if you... He, says, he basically says, guys, stick with it. Don't give up. Don't, don't stop. Understand that this is the most important thing in your life, and that is Jesus Christ. If our faith, this is important, if our faith is saving faith, you cannot be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Pastor, what do you mean by saving faith? You know what I mean. You're either saved or you're not. We can't play that game with God. We either are or we're not. He doesn't have to go, well, let me see. They've been to church three Sundays in a row. They worked in the nursery twice. See, we might have to do that. God doesn't. He knows whether we're saved or not. He knows whether we bear his blood pumping through our bones or not. 
Paul turns and says, you know, I, I rejoice in my sufferings. Look at that next verse, verse 24. Then he goes on to talk about this mystery of Christ that's been revealed by Jesus coming into the world. I'm not going to go through all of those. We're running out of time, but I encourage you to if you get a moment. And Paul is just telling everybody, stick with it. Work on your relationship with God. The mystery used to be called a sacred secret. It's not a secret anymore, guys. We have it. That mystery is that God cared enough about us that he gave us eternal life. Guys, nobody's perfect. The church is not perfect. It never will be. And even if you could build the perfect building, you put one person in it, it would be tainted because we're sinners. Saved by the grace and the mercy of God. It's a hospital for sinners. It's not just a sanctuary for the saints. Yes, it is. But it's a hospital for those who are broken. And aren't we all broken in one way or another, in some fashion or another? Don't we all need the great physician to come in and put us back together again? And begin to feel like a human being all over again because of someone who cared enough for you to die for you? That's how much you're valued in the Lord. Paul tells them in verse 24 that he is more than happy to suffer for the sake of the gospel and for the body. That means you and I, the body, the church, the Christians. Let me say one more thing and then we'll pray, and that is you can't have a saving faith. And this is going to get me in trouble. But you cannot have a saving faith and rewrite the Bible. There, I said it. You're not saved. I, I'm sorry, but you, if, you want to, if you've got to rewrite what God put together for us, you're not saved. And if you are saved, I don't know what you're saved from because it's not the same Jesus of the Bible. We've got to be very, very, very careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and start picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like, and then turning around and telling everybody else that they're wrong because they don't know what we know. That deconstruction will be the end of Christianity. Because if you take it apart, you start, uh, you start disbelieving and telling people this is not true, and that's not true. Where does that stop? Just let me ask you, where does that stop? Till the next professor comes up and says, well, Jesus really wasn't real. And you have a bunch of hungry people who thinks he's at the top of the food chain and they begin to espouse the same lie. Hang on to it, guys. Consider it dear. Hold on to it steadfast. And yeah, we should read it a little more. <laughs> but hang on to it. And hang on to your faith. And somebody comes in, you know, espousing this stuff, just say, you know what, brother? I just don't want to get into this. My faith is solid in the Lord and I believe in the word of God. Let's pray.